morning. I hate to admit it, but I think uh, Eric probably does a, a better job than I do at giving those announcements. I, I know I remember the announcements better this, this week because I listened to them. <laughs> Believe it or not, this is I think this is the first time that the Avon Hope leader has actually spoken to Avon Hope as a group like this. And so when I was thinking of, of a topic to speak about, uh, I really uh, selected carefully. Uh, I wanted this to be something that was very meaningful, something that I could communicate to Ab and Hope as, as part of uh, a vision for what we want to do. And uh, so that's why I've chosen the topic of, of revival as illustrated in the story of Elijah. And I think revival is something that, that we all want for Ab and Hope and that we all want personally for our own lives. Let's have a short prayer. Dear Father in Heaven, thank you so much for the stories in the Bible that you have given to us uh, to, to show us how we can have an experience of power, an uh, experience with your Holy Spirit that can draw us closer to you. Help us to have that experience uh, this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you turn with me in your Bibles to, to Malachi? The last book of the, of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6. These are actually the last two verses of the Old Testament. The Bible says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Malachi was one of the last uh, Old Testament prophets. And of course, in his book, the last few verses are a prophecy, a, uh, a promise from God to the children of, of Israel that before the Messiah came to deliver them, before he came, there would be, uh, that he would send Elijah the prophet. And so the Jewish nation looked for many years for this, this Elijah that was to come. In fact, you'll find that when John the Baptist came uh, before Jesus, that people asked, are you Elijah? There was this, this idea that Elijah would actually somehow be resurrected. He'll, he would come back and usher in the Messiah. And so they asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? Are you resurrected and come back? And of course John the Baptist said, no, I'm not. But we find out later that, uh, that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And we'll be talking about that. Uh, when Jesus was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When he said it, it sounded like he was calling for Elijah. And so people said, oh, is he calling for Elijah to come and save him? There was this idea that Elijah would come back and would save them, deliver them. So we do know that, that Elijah did come before the first coming of Jesus. And we know that because Jesus told us. And let's turn to Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, the disciples of John the Baptist actually came to Jesus. John the Baptist was now in, uh, in prison, and he was uh, very close to execution at this point, and he wanted to know, Jesus, are you the one, or should we look for another? 
And so uh, Jesus didn't say much to them. He just told them to watch as he did his uh, ministry. But after those disciples left, he talked to the multitude. And this is what he said. Let's look at verse 14. Talking about John the Baptist, he said, And if ye will receive it, this is Elias. Elias being uh, the, the Greek name for Elijah. This is Elias, which was for to come. In other words, Jesus is saying here that that, that prophecy in Malachi is, has been fulfilled by John the Baptist. He is that Elijah that has been prophesied. All right? In fact, we can know even more clearly in Luke, Luke chapter 1. Before John the Baptist was born, his father, Zacharias, being a priest, was, was serving in, in the... Uh, in the temple and an angel came to him and told him that he would have a son and that this would be John the Baptist and part of that message to Zacharias is found in verse 17 this is what the angel said and he shall go before talking about John the Baptist and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord so here we can see that, uh, first of all, that John the Baptist, he was not actually Elijah, resurrected somehow from the dead. But he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, just like Elisha received a double portion of Elijah's spirit, that John the Baptist came in the same spirit, the same power. You can even see echoes of the prophecy there, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. That's a direct repeat of what is prophesied in Malachi. And finally, look at the last part of the verse. It says, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And I would like to submit to you today that just as there is, there was an Elijah that prepared the way for Jesus' first coming, for the incarnation of Christ to this earth, that when Jesus comes a second time, there will also be an Elijah, or perhaps many Elijahs, that have the exact same spirit and power. In fact, Jesus, I know this because Jesus also talked about this in Matthew. So really quickly, let's turn to Matthew chapter 17. In this case, this happened right after the transfiguration. In fact, Elijah and Moses had just appeared beside Jesus, and the disciples were coming, coming back from that experience in Matthew 17. And in verse 10, the disciples asked Jesus, they say, Why then say the Pharisees that Elias must first come? The Pharisees had, had been talking about that prophecy in, in Malachi. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise, also sh likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. So here in verse 12, Jesus says, Elijah has already come, but he was not well received. Notice in verse, and that was John the Baptist. In verse 11, Jesus says though, Elias truly shall first come. 
And uh, I just want to note there that the verb tense is very clear. Shall come is future tense. Is that, am, I, am I right? So in other words, in the future, Elijah will come. In the past, John the Baptist came in the spirit of power of Elijah. But in the future, there will also be an Elijah that will come and he will restore all things. And so, I believe that before Jesus' second coming, uh, and we live in that time, that Elijah will come again. Not Elijah the, the, the man, the physical person, but someone that comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. And I believe that each one of us can have that experience of Elijah. We all can have that, that, that spirit and power. And what was the message of Elijah? To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And somehow Elijah was sent specifically to the people of God with a message of revival. And so in order for us to be, to be that third Elijah, that Elijah before that prepares the way, we need to understand what this message is and we need to be living it ourselves, don't we? And so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how revival is reflected in the story of Elijah. And uh, it's all over, I assure you. Before, before we do that, I want to document a little bit to you how Israel beca uh, became, in a way you could say, became uh, um, how they slid into apostasy. And uh, that will set up the story of Elijah. So let's, let's move into our story in 1 Kings chapter 16. And let's start in verse 29. And in the thirty and eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal, and worshipped him. Now, I first want to mention that Israel was not always this bad. There was a time when things were going better for the nation of Israel. Of course, we know about uh, King Saul uh, and King David. That's when the kingdom uh, really began to prosper. And under Solomon, they reached the pinnacle of their, of their nation's history. But after Solomon died, uh, the, there was some civil unrest. And the nation actually split Two tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin, split away and became uh, what was called Judah, and they became the southern kingdom. And the other ten tribes became the kingdom of Israel, and they were in the north. They, uh, the kingdom of Israel had a king named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam, after this civil war and the split, he had a little problem because the center of worship for the Israel, for the Israel for the Jewish religion was where? 
in Jerusalem. And where is Jerusalem? In Judah. So every year, for every feast, every festival, uh, all these Israelites are going to travel to the capital of the enemy nation, and they're going to uh, they're going to worship there, and they're going to be drawn away from. They're going to be drawn to to uh, back to their to Judah to Jerusalem. They're going to defect to the other side, and Jeroboam didn't want that. That didn't, didn't seem uh, politically uh, expedient for him, and so he had to uh, think of something very quickly. So he came up with with this idea. What he did was he crafted two golden calves. Uh, that's not the first time that Israel had golden calves. But uh, he crafted these things and he placed them in two cities in Israel. One in Dan and one in Bethel. And he told the people, these are your gods. These are the gods that led you up out of Egypt. Worship them. And he... Uh, he actually set up two alternate centers of worship. Not only that, but he began to set up his own priesthood. In fact, First Kings says that Jeroboam selected the lowliest of the people and made them priests. Not only that, he built high places, he built groves, I mean, he went all out. However, they were still theoretically worshiping Jehovah. And here is the bottom line when it comes to apostasy. The slide into apostasy begins with little compromises. At first, you're, you, you set up an alternative center of worship, but it's more for political reasons, right? I mean, it's not, you're not trying to, to cause people not to worship Jehovah. Uh, you know, they worship these, these images, but they're still worshiping Jehovah. And uh, after a while, you get used to worshiping these, these idols, right? You can make more of them, that's alright. And once you do that, you start to look around and you start to, uh, uh, you start to see that there's not, so much, there's not so much difference between you and the Canaanites around you, right? And gradually, the children of Israel began to imitate the worship, shall I say, worship styles of the Israelites around them. This is a very common theme in the history of Israel. Uh, once you have idols, you look around and you start to realize that, you know, it would be much, uh, much prettier if we were to plant some trees around here. We need some shade. And, uh, you know, it creates this garden atmosphere. It's, it's much more, uh, uh, how should I say, serene. And you can, you can uh, focus on God there. Uh, we'll plant some trees. It looks very similar to the groves that the Canaanites have. But uh, little by little, they begin to, to, uh, to take these groves. We'll, we'll, we'll move them to, uh, to the mountaintop, right? You know, we're closer to God. Oh, this is similar to what the Canaanites did. Eventually you slide into a period of apostasy um, gradually. And this is what happened to Israel. By the time Ahab comes around, apostasy is pretty much near complete. Uh, read with me the next uh, the verse, verse 32 of 1 Kings chapter 16. Talking about Ahab. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove... And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that 
were before him. You know, before we move on here, I did want to make one more point, and that is that there is a temptation sometimes when we, when we feel that people, people might leave. To, uh, if we want people to come to our religious activity, that maybe we should make some changes. Maybe we should make it appeal to them. And this is the trap that Jeroboam fell into. I know that when restoration began, there were many people that did not believe that restoration would be successful. Uh, the evangelistic meetings that we have here on campus, that they would not appeal to young people. And in fact, many administrators uh, told me this. They had never seen it work on this campus before. But that's the, uh, the beauty of, of, of God's work. When we stick to God's plan, when we, when we refuse to compromise on the little things, then God can bless. You know, it's true. Restoration didn't have a semi-professional uh, praise and worship band. Uh, there were no, there were no uh, dramatic uh, skits or, or big um, different you know, gimmicks to bring people in. We just relied strictly on a message. And many of you are here because of that message, I believe. And, and praise the Lord uh, that uh, many people came. Uh, last year, I believe, we peaked at over 800 to 900 people. There is an interest. And when we follow God's plan, and we refuse to make those little compromises, God can work in mighty ways. But this apostasy eventually ends in not only uh, a change in worship style, but complete all-out worship of Baal. Ahab uh, marries uh, Jezebel, uh, the daughter, and actually you could even say priestess of the of that uh, Canaanite religion. He not only makes an altar, but he actually builds a house of Baal in Samaria, his capital city. And uh, he does he does many other things. He built groves, etc. And uh, at this point, Israel is at the lowest point spiritually of its entire history. Israel is ripe for revival. So now is here where where we begin our story of Elijah. Here's where Elijah enters the scene. Let's read chapter 17, verse 1. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. We know the story here. How... Uh, Elijah sweeps into to Ahab's courtroom. He gives this startling announcement of famine, of drought. And then he's gone before they can arrest him. And for the next three and a half years, Israel is afflicted with a terrible drought. Everything dries up. The, uh, every, uh, the people are, uh, the, the beasts are dying. There are no crops. And it's a terrible curse. And it really contrasts the power of Baal, who is supposed to be this god of nature, this god of, of harvest, the god of agriculture, whatever, and really contrasts his power versus God's. We know all this. But the interesting thing is that God had provided a solution to the children of Israel before. In fact, uh, turn with me to Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7. When King Solomon, 
when he built the, the temple, Solomon's temple, and offered this incredible dedicatory prayer, this dedication service, he was visited by an angel that night. Actually, by the Lord, I believe. And the Lord told him what to do if, any, if a drought ever occurred uh, in, the, in the land. Let's look at verse 13. Here, this is the Lord speaking. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Here's a simple recipe for fixing a drought. If there be no rain, then you need to do several things. And for the sake of, of this talk, I want to categorize those into three parts. The first one is humble, the, humble themselves. This attitude of humility is very important. And uh, there's an element of prayer as well. And finally, turn from their wicked ways. I want to call that reform. When you have a revival, I, I will submit to you that there are at least three things, a minimum of three things that have to occur. There has to be a humbling of ourselves and our hearts. There has to be prayer. And there has to be a work of reform that accompanies it. It shows that it's a genuine revival. And we will see these reflected in, in, Elijah's, in the story of Elijah. So let's turn to let's turn back to to First Kings, and we will move on to the story of the widow of Zarephath. In fact, let's start in verse uh, verse eight in chapter seventeen of First Kings. We'll be coming back to First Kings for our story as we go along, and in fact. Although our points, uh, our three ingredients were uh, humility, and uh, then uh, prayer, and then reform. I'm going to actually uh, do them in the form of uh, humility, and then reform, and then prayer, because that's the way it's found in uh, in the chronology of First Kings. All right. Turning in, starting in verse eight, and the word of the Lord came unto him, Elijah, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon. This is Jezebel's home territory here. And dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. That seems uh, reasonable, right? He's just been traveling. There's... It's pretty hot and dry. There's, there's kind of a drought going on. He needs some water. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. And this is very customary at that time, when someone uh, was, was visiting you or something, that, they would, you know, that you would give them a little bit to eat, or maybe a glass of water, uh, that type of thing. So this was entirely reasonable. Unfortunately, 
this widow was in a little bit of, of a predicament, wasn't she? In verse 12, she says, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. Uh, kind of a heartbreaking story, isn't it? Uh, pretty much, she didn't even have enough... Uh, she didn't have enough to eat. She was pre preparing their last little meal. She was ready to die. She couldn't. Uh, she couldn't feed the prophet. She couldn't even feed her, her um, herself, much less her son. They're going to have their last meal before they die. And so, what do you think Elijah will say to her? Um, in verse 13, Elijah says, "Fear not." Go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. How rude can you be? <laughs> this lady just told you that she has, she can't even feed herself, she's ready to die, her little boy is going to die, and uh, she can't spare any, anything. And besides, remember, Elijah was the one that called this famine. So, and he's saying, I don't really care. Make me uh, some bread first and then feed yourself. It seems selfish, doesn't it? it just doesn't seem uh, the like the merciful kind of God that we serve to ask for something like that. And remember that Elijah in this story is representing God to this woman. What, what God is trying to say here is that in order to truly experience revival, in order to have that, that, that experience with God, we need to have a spirit of humility. You know, that's one reason why the, the famine was set in the first place. It's because sometimes we don't truly understand our condition until we go through some difficult times. Isn't that right? It's too bad, isn't it? But it, it happens. It's human nature to try to say, uh, you know, I'm going to try to make this work myself. And we truly cannot have a revival experience until we are humbled in our hearts and we realize that we can't do it ourselves. And so this, this woman here, she... She was trying her best, bless her heart, with the little sticks that she had to make a little fire to put together this little meal that really was only going to sustain her for probably a, day, a few more days before she was going to die. And she had to come to the place where she understood that all the, the sticks that she, that she was able to collect, uh, the little cake that she was able to make, was not going to be enough. And that she needed to take that cake and she needed to trust in God, give it to God, uh, and allow Him, trust in Him to sustain her. Remember that when you are seeking revival in your, in, in your own life. What is, it, what, what is it that you're trying to do by yourself? What little cake are you trying to, to, to muster up for God? Is it worth it? Because God makes us a promise, and that promise is found in the next verse. Read with me, verse 14. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, 
The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. When God asks us for our, for our all, for our best, for all that we have, He always promises that He will sustain us. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? That God will, He doesn't just take, but He gives much more than we ever give to Him. That little cake was worth almost nothing. Uh, a couple more days. And here, God is promising that He will sustain. And don't miss this point here, that a barrel of meal, what does that represent? That, that's, that's the bread that she was about to make, the little cake. And the oil. What does bread and oil represent in the Bible? Okay, God's Word and the Holy Spirit. When you're going through a famine in your life, when you're going through a difficult time, and you humble yourself before God, God promises to sustain you, not just physically. Uh, sometimes, you know, that may or may not come. But spiritually, God has provided for each one of us to sustain us through any period of trial in our life. And we, we find in the next verse that when she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, that she and he and her, uh, her house did eat many days. And if you look in the, in the reference there, at least in my Bible, uh, another way that you can uh, interpret that is for a full year. Uh, we know the famine lasts for three and a half years. And uh, so approximately a year, or I guess you could say two and a half years into the famine, there's still a whole year to go. One little cake's not going to make it. But when, you, when we trust in God, that God can provide, and that He can spark that revival in our lives. Alright, that's our first point of humility, of total surrender to the Lord, a prerequisite for revival. The next part of the story is found in chapter 18. And to just summarize, uh, Elijah, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah again and tells him to go talk to Ahab. And he does. And eventually this leads to the setting up of this showdown on Mount Carmel. And we're fairly familiar with, with this uh, story. In verse 21, Elijah comes to the children of Israel and he gives them this ultimatum. You know, sometimes when, uh, when we are seeking this revival experience, there will come a time when you are called to a decision point. When you just, somehow you know, it might be in your heart, maybe there's some appeal that's given, and you're convicted that you need to do something about what you've been, uh, what the Lord's been, been, been impressing upon your mind. And, uh, I mean, that may, might be a, a time at GYC where all of a sudden everything comes together and you feel like, the Lord wants me to make a decision. Or perhaps it's a quiet moment in the morning where the Lord has been leading you slowly to a point where you feel like, I need to give this up. It's time to surrender this thing. I don't know what that is for you. I know what it is for me. But there comes a time when there's a decision point. And Elijah says to the people, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And let me just tell you this morning, that if you feel right now in your life that you are halting between two opinions, that means that you are wavering, that you know what's right, but you just haven't let go of something else. And these, there are these two opinions waging a war in your mind. The great controversy is being fought. And God is calling you. He's saying, listen, how long are you going to waver? You need to make a decision. And I believe that, uh, that we can have a Mount Carmel experience. The Lord will make it clear to us 
which way is the right way. And he does that to the children of Israel. The fire, the, the, the bolt of lightning or fire just comes down and consumes the whole altar. You know the story. And the people cry in verse, uh, I believe it's 39. They say, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. What a contrast between the power, the worship styles, the, the, the system of worship of Baal and of God. But what I want to bring out, actually, is verse 40. In verse 40, there is kind of a, an interesting development. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and slew them there. Now, when I first read this, when I, especially when I was young, and even now when I read that, it just... It's, it's kind of an interesting wrap-up to a story of, of such conviction, uh, the, the mercy of God of bringing this, this, um, this showdown and this conviction that's brought. And then you have this bloody, kind of violent ending to the story. Uh, I always wonder, is it really necessary to, you know, to, to have this, this type of a, uh, inclusion in the Bible? But there's a, there's a significant point that needs to be brought up from here. And that is that... These prophets of Baal, they represent that system of worship, that, of Baal worship, right? If those prophets of Baal had been allowed to, to live, if they had let them live, what would have happened? Most likely, looking back at the history of Israel, that there would have been a time of, of revival, but then those prophets, they would regroup, they would reassert themselves. People would turn back to the, to the worship. And the, that whole conviction, that time would be lost. It's just, that's human nature. How many times have we had this, gone to maybe a, a, a special retreat or, or revival time? And we were really convicted. We may, may even have, have um, responded to an appeal or something like that. But when we came down from the mountain, from wherever it was, or when we came back home, and we just started living our lives again, we kind of slipped back into that, that old rut that we had gotten involved in. That is a direct result of, I believe, not killing the prophets of Baal. And basically, this is what, I, what is, is meant by reform. Whenever there is revival, it's very clear that there is reformation involved as well. And the obvious application to each one of us is what are the prophets of Baal in your life? I don't know what they, who they are. But, and, I, and there may not be 450 of them. It only takes one. Okay, maybe there are four. I mean, I can think of more than one probably in my life. Prophets of Baal that need to be, how shall we say, need to be relieved of their posts, of their priesthood. Okay? We need to follow through on the decisions that we make for the Lord, don't we? And there are prophets of Baal in our lives that need to be killed. It, might, it sounds violent. It, it's difficult. It's not easy to, to kill those prophets of Baal. Uh, it had been, it had been uh, probably decades, maybe more, that these, these prophets had been prophesying and this whole system of worship it started from Jeroboam and it became a way of life. But 
there is, that is a necessary part. Let's not forget the part of reform. Here at Avon Hope, we want to bring a revival to ourselves, to the campus, to Loma Linda. But we also want to support a work of reform, a work that says, the Lord has convicted me and I made, and He transformed me. He changed me. Do you believe that God can do that for you? I believe that. And finally, let's look at prayer. You know, Elijah was a man of prayer. And uh, in James chapter 5, verse 17, we find out... We, we find out a little bit more about, about Elijah and his prayer life. In fact, let's start in verse, the end of verse 16. You know, the Bible says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And Elijah was a righteous man. And he prayed. In fact, in verse 17 it says, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. He was no different than you or I. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Did you know that, that Elijah prayed for that drought? There's something that he... Uh, when you read, uh, I believe it's Prophets and Kings... Ellen White comments on the fact that he was living in, the, in Gilead. He was living in the hills at that time. And, and he was praying for revival. But not only that, the Bible says that he was praying for a drought. Sometimes it's not blessings that we need. Sometimes we actually become closer to the Lord in times of trial, in difficult times. And if that's what it takes, that's what we need to pray for. Okay, but uh, Elijah also prayed, and it rained. So let's go back to that story in uh, 1 Kings. You might want to keep your finger around 1 Kings 18. And let's look quickly at, at Elijah's uh, prayer, or his attitude of prayer. Let's start with... Let's start with, uh, with verse, actually verse 41. I just want to make a comment. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. Remember, there is not a cloud in sight in the whole sky. There, is, there, is, uh, there has not, not been rain for three and a half years, and Elijah uh, predicts rain based on the word of the Lord. What faith. Finally, in verse 42... And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth, and he put his face between his knees. He assumed the most reverent position possible. He was pleading with the Lord. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, Go up, say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. Two points I want to bring here, bring up here. First of all, Elijah did not pray one time, but he he prayed seven. You could even say maybe eight times here, but he he prayed multiple times for the rain. 
And there is this element of prayer, this, this perseverance of prayer, that is, I believe, really important, especially when we're praying for revival. Because it may not happen overnight. There are times of, of, of famine and drought. How often do you pray for something? It seems like, at least in my own life, that we give up so easily in prayer. Or we forget so easily. How much do you really want something? Are you willing to pray for, for that uh, for you know, every, every day, for a week, for a month? Are you prepared to do that for years? Sometimes it takes years. You have a loved one, perhaps, that is that doesn't know the Lord, or that you don't that you want to to minister to. Sometimes it takes years. Sometimes it takes that that drought experience. Whatever it is, are you prepared to pray as long as it takes? Because Elijah was. And when it comes to revival, uh, I would I would encourage you that prayer is essential. Ellen White tells us that we need to be praying for an outpouring of the latter rain. And that, that's, that's what we need. The other thing is, are you prepared for what you're praying for? If you're praying for revival, are you prepared when God will bring that revival to you? Notice here, when, when Elijah, when he prays, all he sees is a cloud the size of a man's hand. We're not, he didn't wait till he fell, till he saw the storm clouds uh, covering the sky. He didn't wait until there, uh, there were drops of water that were starting to fall, and then he realized, okay, now this is confirmation. I can go tell Ahab. As soon as he saw this cloud appear on the horizon, he was he was over. He sent his servant to go get Ahab because he knew rain was coming and it was going to be a downpour. Are you prepared for what you pray for? When the latter rain comes, when you see God's spirit starting to move, are you ready for that? Has your bread and your water been, and your oil been sure? I believe it can be. Those are the three elements of revival. And there is so much more uh, that, that we could share. Uh, study, the, study the life of Elijah and Elisha, the life of John the Baptist, and find out what it takes to bring revival. Uh, I did not. I didn't mention the fact that Elisha, when he was called by Elijah, that he uh, he was he was a farmer by trade. He took the oxen that he that uh, he had been plowing with, and when he made a commitment to to ministry, he killed his oxen. He boiled them with the the they call the tools of of whatever it was you know the yoke. He 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 cooked them. And he fed, fed his house, and he left. When he committed to the Lord to have that spirit and power of Elijah, he left his old life behind. And that was symbolized by this, this sacrifice, this work of reform, this, this putting aside of the old life, and this, this, this new life, this re- revival. There's so many instances. Uh, there's a, I, I can't show them all. Uh, go back and, 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 and look at that. But if, if you want to, to have that spirit and power of Elijah, if you believe in that message, if you want to be part of, this, of, of a movement that at the end of time will make ready a people prepared for the Lord, and if you want to be a part of, those, of that people that is prepared for the Lord, please, whatever you do, don't forget the three ingredients for a revival. And uh, I know this is an open Sabbath this weekend. Uh, there will be a little bit of time, I hope. 
reflect back on what are those prophets of Baal in my life. Sometimes to, to really humble our hearts and also to pray and ask the Lord to send the Holy Spirit in a powerful way. Uh, pray for Advent Hope. I believe Advent Hope can be a, uh, a tremendous part of this process. And I think that the Lord wants to do tremendous things if we pray, if we're ready. If you want to be ready to be part of, of do you want to be that third Elijah, why don't you stand and sing uh, our closing hymn. It'll, it'll be number 309, I Surrender All. Thanks.